All right, welcome to the Retro Spectacle Podcast on Drink5.com. Uh, I'm Jason. I'm joined, as always, with my good buddy Dave. Uh, we are here to uh, enjoy the next 60 to 90 minutes, enjoy a beer, and enjoy uh, the life of Douglas Adams. So uh, every week we're going to tackle a different subject. Last week we did television. This week is going to be Douglas Adams. Uh, I'm very excited to talk about one of my favorite authors. I know Dave, he's one of your favorites as well. Um, but uh, first things first, what are you drinking? And I notice you might be a pangalactic gargle blaster. <laughs> well, you'd know that because I'd be falling to the floor already, uh, probably through several floors, you know, from all the residual acid from the pangalactic. The drink would just fall through the floor, yeah. Yeah, you know, possibly. I think probably is the right word here. My limit is two on those. <laughs> well, uh, well. anyway, I, I think I have a prairie path here uh, from Two Brothers. And beautiful beer. I was just up in Michigan this past weekend, and so I have a couple other new ones to drink, in addition to some great uh, Two Brothers. And I know you've got one poured for yourself, too, so what's that? I do. I have the Cain and Abel Red Rye Ale. Um, it's awesome. It's probably... Uh, my favorite beer of theirs that is um, uh, not like an IPA, not the Outlaw or the Sidewinder or the, um, oh, I forget their new, the Wobble IPA is the new one. That's a really good one. But we love Two Brothers Brewery around here. Uh, they're local guys and they make fine product. Fine product. So let's play a little game. It's not going to be too hard. It's, it's every time uh, anybody says Marvin, we just uh, drink a little bit of our respective beers. Okay. So, uh, let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, as we do the podcast each week, we're also going to have sort of a, an article up on the website, drink5.com. Uh, and it's kind of a companion article, so it's not exactly what we are chatting about, but some of that may be touched on. Right. I mean, you know, I'm not going to have your thoughts on my article and vice versa. That's, uh, yeah, that hasn't happened yet in our stages of evolution. So, read the articles and listen to the show. How about I just read the article word for word uh, while listening to music? Does that sound like a great podcast? Okay, I'm going to go get a snack. I'll be back in 10 minutes. <laughs> exactly why we're not doing that. So uh, let's dive right in. Uh, why do we care about Douglas Adams? For those of you who don't know who he is, uh, he is uh, an English chap that wrote a particular series of books that was also a radio show, that was also a TV show, that was also a movie, um, and it kind of spreads around... Uh, our whole culture and, and that of uh, English culture, and uh, you see it in, in TV shows and video games and science and technology pretty much everywhere. So it's called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yes. And uh, it's a trilogy in five parts, uh, which is hard for some people to grasp. I the understand. increasingly inaccurately named Hitchhiker's Guide trilogy. Exactly. So The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, The Restaurant at the End of the Universe, Life, the universe, and everything. So long and thanks for all the fish, and mostly harmless. Aren't there editions with six books in it? Like something else thrown on the end? Well, there is another like book. Notes or something like that? Uh, but but the last book was actually, uh, it was sort of what he had uh, started to write about hitchhikers and was finished by uh, this gentleman named uh, Yoin Koffer, who's also uh, uh, the author of the... I think it's uh, Artemis, some Artemis Fowl uh, series of books. Okay, I think they've heard of that. I don't, I'm not familiar with it. Yeah, so a fantasy, you know, funny kind of author that was sort of in the vein of all of this Hitchhiker's good stuff. 
and although that is a good book in and of itself, it is not specifically all or mostly written by Douglas Adams, so I'm not including it here. Yeah. Anyway, it's it's all been a huge cult success and, and made its way into our culture. And even those of you who may not have read The Guide, which we uh, would recommend you do immediately, and you should probably get the one that's all six books, like you mentioned, that last one in there too. Yeah. Uh, it's like... The gold leaf pages and Gold everything. leaf pages, <laughs> this gigantic leather-bound uh, repository of hitchhiker's information. Or just go to the library and, you know, check it out and read it. Or put it on your give Kindle. Give it to someone else. Which is not really a way that I think anyone should read books, but seems like everyone's doing that. If you, The point is, if you read the book, then that would make uh, the memory of Douglas Adams smile. Sure. Uh, and and so even if you haven't read it, you're probably aware of it and recognize some of the characters or quotes or themes. And there's references to hitchhikers kind of everywhere you look. And so I just wanted to touch upon some of the ways that, that he uh, and the book itself have kind of impacted our world in general. So first of all, there's a couple asteroids named after uh, Douglas Adams and Arthur Dent. Yeah, well, I mean, you can go get a star named after yourself for like 30 bucks on infomercials. Certainly, but, <laughs> but these are like uh, sort of large uh, astral objects that were named by uh, astrophysicists and yes. astronomers, not, not by Douglas Adams because he felt like he needed a sense of, uh, <laughs> of fulfillment in, in creating his own uh, asteroid 25924 Douglas Adams. No, that's awesome. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure that plenty of uh, men in science and women in science are big fans of Douglas Adams. Sure. And, uh, and as far as technology is concerned, this might get a little nerdy, but hey, if you're listening right now or, and or you are a fan of Hitchhikers, you probably fit sort of in that category. So uh, the TIFF file format, which is a, a picture, a kind of image, are you familiar with that uh, format? Yes, I am. Uh, so it's based on 42, and again, this is where it gets kind of nerdy, but uh, every TIFF file begins with a two-byte indicator of byte order, uh, and the next two bytes represent the number 42, which was selected specifically... Because uh, it has deep philosophical significance. Nice. And that's actually in the Adobe uh, like help files for the TIFF format itself. Oh, I like that the binary number for it is 101010. Right. That was my birthday one year. Well, there you go. Yeah. So this it all it In all fact, connects. that year my dad mentioned to me that it was uh, my birthday in binary meant 42. Right. And he is the one who gave me this book to read. When I was in probably like 6th or 7th grade. You should tell him this and he'll be like, N- I didn't intend for that. <laughs> but that's, that's okay. You know, If you add enough numbers together, you eventually get Half-Life 3. Mm. Um, an infinite number of monkey coders and an infinite number of yeah. computers will make Half-Life 3. Uh, some of the other uh, things uh, as far as technology is concerned, Trillion is an instant messaging client out there based on a main character in the series. In fact, a couple of years ago they had a, a release come out called Trillion Astra, which is actually her like middle or last name. Uh, that's uh, Trillian. I think her name is McMillan or something. Trisha like that. McMillan. McMillan. And when she became a space traveler, she had to be cooler. Trillian Astra. Uh, IBM had a famous chess playing computer named Deep Thought that did pretty well. Uh, and Deep Thought comes directly from this series as well. Uh, and Google and Wolfram Alpha will both tell you the answer to life, the universe, and everything is forty-two if you type it into the search engines. So that's kind of a, a neat Easter egg. Uh, and that's a topic for another time too, because man, the, like the amount. I'm beginning to think that it really is the answer. We could do a whole show on the number forty-two. Oh, there's a lot there. And is that what you were about to say? Well, I was about to say like Easter eggs for Google. You know, like like do a barrel roll, oh, and yeah. all sorts of things, and and just the significance of what all those references are. Well, forty-two, and 
my favorite, maybe not my favorite, but like, I don't know, one of my favorite baseball players, Jackie Robinson, he wore number 42. And that number is retired through the entire sport. Yeah. They have a day where everyone wears 42. So you're not allowed to be the number 42? No one is number 42. There was one number 42 left, uh, and it was Mariano Rivera, who who started wearing the number before they retired it throughout the league. You can't have uh, three numbers on your jersey, right? You can only have two in baseball? Right. So that number is retired. I'm pretty sure that nobody in hockey wears number 99 either. Well, I'm just saying. So there can only be a certain number of, of historically really significant players uh, where they then retire oh, the yeah. jersey. Right. If baseball goes on for too long, then they'll just have to start having, like, uh, it's it's 365 out there. We're going to have to unretire jerseys or do something. At number 1,054 is up to bat. It'd be funny. Like, if in football, even, you could have a, you could have a lot fewer uh, people because wide receivers only wear, like, you know, 15 different numbers. So if you had, like, 15 Hall of Fame wide receivers throughout the course of the team's history, then, you know, you'd run out of numbers. Uh, truly. Uh, Babelfish from from Yahoo is a great reference. So Babelfish is or Babelfish uh, is this website that Yahoo created, which is a uh, translation website. Yes, and that allows you basically just to type in something from one language and have it translated to another. Well, that actual creation was from Hitchhiker's Guide, uh, which was this little tiny fish similar to a goldfish that you just insert into your ear. Then it kind of fuses with your with your brain stem or something like that. It like eats. Uh, it, it survives on brain waves, like thought waves. So it, it brings in the uh, the languages that other people are speaking, and then translates them back to you as sort of a waste product. Right, <laughs> that's right. It's a waste product. So it's basically uh, like shitting into your ear. Uh, the shitting trans- language into your ear. The translation of of what everyone else is saying, which is great. That's that's a great concept in general. Um, as far as music is concerned, Zephod Beeblebrox is a famous nightclub in Ottawa, which I would love to go to. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, Zaf- you want to go to Ottawa, uh, Ontario, Canada. Uh, Zephod Beeblebrox, the original pub at the edge of the universe, is an intimate live music venue and dance club, home of the world famous Pan Galactic Gargle Blaster. The best drink in existence is the Pan Galactic Gargle Blaster. The effect of which is like having your brains smashed out by a slice of lemon wrapped around a large gold brick. The best. And yes, uh, only two of those in any given night is my suggestion. Right, and other exotic galactic cocktails. Uh, and it has played host to an eclectic mix of performers, including Alanis Morissette, Cracker, the Afghan Wigs, uh, and countless others. And so I like that for multiple reasons. Um, Radiohead has one of their songs Paranoid Android which is off of the OK Computer album which is a fantastic album by the way Uh, the song was sort of intended to be humorous and Tom York said it was chosen as a joke because you know Marvin uh, which (laughs) that's the key word here so everybody everybody drink that's listening along to uh, Two Brothers and to Douglas he's like oh I'm so depressed and he just thought that's great that's how people would like me to be so that was the end of writing (laughs) about anything personal in the song thing you ought to know i'm feeling very depressed which which is the same guy uh who played uh, snape in the harry potter series sounded like it i'm gonna look that up no it absolutely is but but he wasn't the guy who originally was the voice uh right from well i mean when you say original do you mean like the original series which we'll touch on is the, the radio, radio series okay then after the radio series, they uh, they did a novelization. Uh, then then that novelization sort of led up to other things. 
Um, in 2006, the British group Supergrass put on their official website a Flash animation intro sequence in the, <laughs> in the style of the computer graphics used in the BBC TV series. Um, and and man, I the uh, the BBC TV series we used to watch that in high school. Absolutely, that's that's one of the the first uh, things that that we kind of. Uh, uh, bonded together on was was this Hitchhiker's series, which was so ridiculous that probably yeah, that's true. Probably a lot of people wouldn't have even watched more than five minutes of it. I'm pretty sure that we met in high school because I saw you walking around with a book in your hand about Hitchhikers. Yeah, you had Hitchhikers. You know the five part uh, trilogy. Okay, well we'll get to that. I want to I want to touch on that a little that's later. Great. Uh, the band Coldplay's album Viva La Vida includes a song called 42 uh, and a previous album which is the one that everyone kind of got into Coldplay here in America with they had a song called Don't Panic that's the Parachutes album and uh, and Chris Martin said it, it is and isn't related to Doug, uh, uh, Douglas Adams but obviously you know these are things that you're going to get from British groups uh, so like Radiohead and Supergrass and Coldplay which I touched on um, but then also kind of leaks into uh, American culture because it seems like all the cool stuff that happens in uh, in England tends to take a little bit longer to get here. <laughs> sure. Uh, um, Top Gear wasn't popular for quite a while. Yeah, and you're a now big, it's huge. You're a big fan of Top Gear, right? Oh yeah. Uh, so I guess what we should uh, talk about besides besides that is uh, is how he became who he was. But before that, I want to touch on just a couple more references. In uh, in House MD, which is a great show, uh, Dr. Gregory House says his favorite number is 42 when prompted. In The X-Files, Fox Mulder lives in apartment 42. Uh, in the TV series Space, which we would recommend to anybody, great show. And, and why is it a great show? Because it, well, it's like the first thing that Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg and Nick Frost did together. And they went on to do all kinds of great stuff like Shaun of the Dead. And, um, but what's the gimmick of the show? The gimmick of the show is that they uh, sort of do homages to all kinds of different scenes. Yeah, like every scene is an like, homage to another scene. To another movie somewhere. It's great. Like in the very beginning of the show, they do the Pop-Tart scene from Pulp Fiction. Yes. It's hilarious. And so uh, in space, they did sort of a computer graphic style used in the BBC TV series. Yeah. Which makes us happy because it means we're not the only people that watched it. Right. All kidding aside, it's actually a pretty a pretty popular series. And since it did come out, I think in the eighties, you have to give it a little bit of a break. Right. It was it was in the eighties and it was on the BBC. Uh, so it's like doubly cheesy, especially because it's a space thing. But you know what? The BBC probably knew how to make a fun space adventure more than America did because they had so much success with Doctor Who up to that point. Yeah. Um, in Lost, forty two is the last of the mysterious numbers. Um, 40, and, 15, 16, 23, 42. And a lot of the uh, of the writers and producers have all kind of come together and said, yes, that is the reason we put it there. It is an homage to Douglas. You have to go back, Dave. In uh, in Stargate Atlantis, uh, Season 4, Episode Quarantine, 42 are the last two digits in Rodney McKay's password. And then he's like confronted and, and asked what 42 means. And he says it's the ultimate answer to the great question of life, the universe, and everything. Uh, and then... Uh, the character that asks him that question just looks confused, um, and that is sort of a uh, a response that that a lot of people give. I feel like you know, like uh, you either kind of know this and love it, and and, and it's a, a cultural phenomenon, or you don't really have any idea what it is, right. um, and you don't notice it, and it's not as fun, right? <laughs> and uh, in one of my but ignorance is bliss, right? In one of my uh, favorite TV series, Doctor Who, Hitchhiker's Guide has been referenced by the Doctor on multiple occasions. One time he asked, um, 
who had said that the Earthmen rarely invite their ancestors to dinner, <laughs> which comes from the series. Uh, Doctor once compared himself to Arthur Dent after saving the Earth from an invasion in a dressing gown. And uh, I think that was uh, David Tennant on the Doctor Who series. Oh, yeah. That was the, the first Tennant episode. He was in his like a nightgown the whole time. The Christmas Invasion. Yeah, and uh, 42 was one of the numbers the Doctor guessed when trying to find out the security protocol on uh, Voyage of the Damned. And then there's an episode called 42, and uh, <laughs> and the ship in 42 is on its way to crashing into a star. Right. So, I mean, there's more, and, I, and I'll get into it later, but Doctor Who is intrinsically linked with Douglas Adams and Hitchhiker's Guide. Yes. Uh, as this sort of, like, fantasy, crazy uh, storyline with all of these great showrunners and script writers. You can totally imagine that the literal Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a thing that the Doctor keeps in the TARDIS. Yes, yes. So uh, so how did you get into the Hitchhiker's Guide, and, uh, and, and what medium were you first exposed to it? You were just talking about uh, in high school, so you and I went to the same high school, and uh, were you, have you read Hitchhiker's uh, before then? Yeah, I think I read it in probably 7th or 8th grade, I think, would probably be, because I remember it being... Uh, like it, it was not just a book that my dad wanted to read me, me to read for enjoyment. Like it was when I was learning to read, and it was sort of a more challenging book. But it's not necessarily a hard book. It's a very fun and easy book. And it was maybe one of the first books that I read that had a lot of comedy in it, and I instantly loved it because of that. You know, I never knew that a book could be so fun. And well, that sounds really cheesy, but when I was what ten or twelve, uh, probably about twelve, uh, I you know. It was a revelation to me. Yeah, it's it's funny, it's whimsical, and it's one of those things where you can read it in several different age brackets and kind of get something different out of it because yeah. there is that like British dry humor in it. Uh, there's also uh, like relationship things that are happening. Uh, there's also uh, like all of these crazy jokes that you have to be very intelligent uh, and understand like bureaucracy and these other adult concepts in order right. to understand. But there's also like very easy to understand humor, like a lot of the Monty Python stuff that again, we'll, we'll touch on like kind of slapstick sort of uh, um, redundancy kind of, kind of humor. Like that... He has, he has quick jokes and he has long setup jokes and he has sarcastic jokes. It's, it's, you know, He's not a one-trick pony. And you mentioned Monty Python. That is, uh, I, I had been exposed to Monty Python before reading this. So I was prepared for that kind of comedy, and I was able to pick up on it right away. And it hit me because it was so unique. You know, now there's plenty of it for me to be exposed to, but at the time, that was all there was. Okay, so your your first thoughts when you, when you read that was kind of, uh, this is a, a funny, interesting, uh, fantastical book, right? Yes. And so did you just read the first the first novel at that time? Uh, I think, like... Because you're talking about 10 to 12, which is pretty pretty young. Right. So, I, let's say I was 12. I probably read um, at least, like, the first three of them. Because I remember So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, like, right away. Um, the Restaurant at the End of the Universe. So, maybe there was four at that time. I don't remember what the um, publishing timeline is for those. Gotcha. Well, but I, I just remember... Like when I was a kid, I only I loved it for the jokes. I didn't get the story as much. It wasn't until uh, a little when I was a little bit older when I watched it again and sort of got the story again, and then was exposed to it again in two thousand five when the movie came out. Um, 
The majority of those books were already published because uh, Douglas passed away in uh, in 2001. And uh, for the last six years of his life, he was uh, sort of trying to write this last book. So I doubt that there was uh, any books that, that weren't out. Or... Well, all I was saying was that... Okay, so Mostly Harmless came out in 92 when I would have been 10. So, yeah, they were probably all out. And I probably read uh, them all, you know, maybe not... Right away, but in the you know within like five or six months. Okay, so so Douglas Adams is born right, which could have been boring, but but it was actually interesting because <laughs> uh, and and leaving aside like his well, uh, hang on, hand. How did you get exposed to this, to it, to that uh, book? Okay, so so I uh, I got into Hitchhiker's Guide after I was uh, initially exposed to like AOL and the internet and those kinds of communities. Oh, so this is something that you came to through like the internet, right? Oh, cool. And you know, I was I was always involved, uh, like with uh, Apple products and like HyperCard and like scripting languages and the World Wide Web and the internet. And uh, and Douglas was an Apple master, which is uh, one of a select group of sort of celebrities that were the first people to really embrace like the Macintosh and what it had to offer as this. Uh, you know, this new GUI, this kind of different language that people spoke. Um, and, and that's a different show. But, you know, this is, is kind of like what creative people used in the, in the mid-80s and late-80s and early-90s uh, and still today uh, to, to kind of bring uh, the things that they wanted uh, to bring to uh, reality uh, okay, out, so, of, out of nothing. Oh, that's it. I never knew, like, you know... Uh, uh, because you're a fan of Apple, you were really into Apple things, and he was very well promoted in that community. Yeah, for example, um, uh, Douglas actually was widely known as the first person in Europe to buy a Macintosh, and you know who the nice. second person was? Uh, no, who? Stephen Fry. Awesome. Uh, so in, <laughs> in good company, right? So uh, so a lot of these people uh, that were regarded as Apple masters are these influential, funny, sort of uh, a little bit. Um, a little bit out of the box kind of characters, right? And and that's kind of what I saw myself as at the time. I wanted to be something that wasn't the norm. And you know, Apple's commercial in 1984 about like, uh, what did they do? It was a Super Bowl commercial right. where they had like uh, the 1984 uh, novelization sort of uh, put into uh, a TV commercial with Big Brother on the on the big screen, and then this one woman who uh, was was just like running up the aisle where everyone was sitting there watching this big head talking, smashing it with a sledgehammer. And that's how I always thought of, of them, which is so funny. And again, this is another show, absolutely. <laughs> but but now that Apple is like the biggest company in the <laughs> they world... They are the man on the screen. Well, I, I don't know that that's true, but... They're a lot closer to that now. Absolutely. And before they were like this renegades, this revolution, you know, and that's what Adams really bit into. Uh, and that's how I got he into it. He helped fuel that. I mean, he was a creative mind when it was a new thing. That's how they got uh, such a stronghold is by, like, uh, gripping these these uh, influential people. Never underestimate the power of celebrity endorsement, my friend. Yeah, well, <laughs> and, and he is a celebrity, but he was a celebrity that was, like, friends with... It doesn't Dave, have to be a bad thing. With David Gilmore and, like, you know, fr friends with, like, the sort of... Uh, was, you knew the guys from Monty Python. He helped work on that. But those show. are all kind of like out of the box celebrities, 
Those are the best kind, dude. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with you. <laughs> See, you should have you should have been into the uh, Apple stuff when you were younger. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I you didn't took, have a choice though. I so. took a totally different approach. I was anti Apple because I grew up on DOS and using that. And that I sounds thought terrible. It was so much like <laughs> more sensible to use. It felt like the logical choice to me. My analytical mind preferred that. I wasn't a creative person. Um, you know, I'm a little more creative as an adult, I suppose, because I can. Force myself to do that? Force yourself to do it. Yes. You've compromised after all these years. A little bit. <laughs> okay, so so that's that's how I got into it. Um, and I sort of touched upon some of these early websites and uh, and like uh, using that in news groups and forums, talking about books. And, and I used to just love reading books when I was in uh, elementary school and junior high. Still do, but don't have enough time for it anymore. But reading stuff like Ender's Game and Hitchhiker's Guide and, uh, and other series in, in that kind of vein uh, sort of uh, really did help to, uh, to shape how my life ended up going, for better or for worse. Because I realized, because of reading these kinds of novels, that the world was not just a cut and dry place where two equals two. Yeah. You know, you should be um, looking out for, for things crazy happening all around you and for, for twists and turns and maybe take some of those corridors that don't look like they're the best way to travel. Um, so, yeah, so Douglas Adams is born, which, <laughs> which again could have been boring, but what happened was and all his family life aside, he moved to an animal shelter to live with his grandparents when he was about five years old because his uh, mom and dad got divorced. And so it probably influenced him at a young age to care about the world around him, nature and animals, especially animals. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and later in life, he wrote a, a novel called Last Chance to See, which documented his travels around the world to visit the habitats of animals that were right near extinction and try to raise awareness and efforts to help the animals. Um, and so you have to think that that probably is a direct contributing factor. The fact that when he was growing up from those years of like five until, you know, whatever, probably into his formative years of 15, 16, something like that, uh, he was raised in this, uh, in this shelter. So uh, I thought um, Last Chance to See is uh, basically, like, like I said, it's, it's a novel where him and uh, another another person that he worked on it with they put a big map of the world on a wall basically and they and just had uh, Adams take some pins and stick them wherever he wanted to go yeah right and then the other guy that was working on it with him forgive me I, I don't remember his name his name is Mark Carraway Okay. Carawadane. Well, then he put a pin wherever they were endangered animals. These guys are from England, and I can't pronounce the freaking last name. <laughs> uh, and so wherever there was a pin that was both a place Douglas wanted to go and an endangered animal, uh, that's where they went. And and then they uh, they researched these. Uh, I hope you're not uh, spoiling yourself for uh, possible questions. <laughs> are you assuming that I just pulled up all the answers? Yes. Oh. Uh. I don't have to look at them. Okay. Well, I suppose I probably did just do that. I. <laughs> okay, so so I have a quick quiz for you, and that is uh, called Name That Habitat. Okay. And so I don't even know what these things are, really. I read the book a while ago, but uh, but not for, for quite some time. So the first animal uh, is called the uh, Aye-Aye. Okay. And it's a, it's a... I will tell you what it is. Maybe it'll help you. Okay. Uh, it's a, a lemur. And it com- okay. It combines. I got a guess for the lemur. It combines rodent-like teeth and a special thin middle finger 
to fill the same ecological niche as, as a woodpecker. As a New Yorker? Yes. A right ear. As a New Yorker. Yes. So I'm going to guess that this guy's from Jersey. No, no. <laughs> um, uh, Madagascar is my guess for the lemur. Right. That's correct. Awesome. I don't have the answer. I, I probably pulled up the page. I didn't look at it. I I got rid of it. <laughs> I don't got it. This is. I know that lemurs are from Madagascar. This guy is probably playing trivia crack with like his tablet set up. It's like that's too much, dude. It's too much work to cheat on games like on your phone. It is too much work. It is. It's not worth it. If you're cheating on games on your phone, you should just go find a better game to play. Okay. There's there's another one. It's called the uh, the kakapo, which is uh, translates roughly to night parrot. Uh, it's also called the owl parrot. It doesn't fly. It's nocturnal, and it actually is is only really living on the ground. So uh, okay, so it's so a- animals like that usually develop on islands. Um, <laughs> dude, and and where do you think this animal is from? <laughs> is it silly of me to guess Madagascar twice? Yes, it's silly because uh, well, they didn't. They only went. Then to I'm going to guess uh, that it's from New Zealand. This is ridiculous, Jason. Yes, two for two. I don't believe you at all. That's fine. I, I wish there was. Uh, we need like a producer so that he can be sort of looking over over your shoulder. Right, right now he has like probably Kakapo up on Wikipedia. No. <laughs> well, good job. So Madagascar and New Zealand, correct. And so the last one is the northern white rhinoceros. So okay. You know that it is northern, and you know where rhinoceroses come from usually. Sure. Generally. Where do they come from? Well, they are from Africa, and I'm sure that there was some in Asia as well. Okay. So uh, this particular rhinoceros is considered critically endangered. An okay. Interesting term. Extinct in the wild. Interesting. So it really only means that uh, all of the rhinoceros uh, says, is it rhinoceros? It must be rhinoceros. It must be rhinoceroses. <laughs> rhinoceros. Uh, they they all are in a zoo. There's only five of them left, according to the white rhinos. Yeah, mm. exactly. So white rhino. Where I'm is it gonna from? guess India. No, it's not India. Okay, see, I don't have the answers. You in got front this of me. one wrong. Just to uh, no, where is it? Just to appease uh, from Zaire. Zaire. Okay. So uh, so northern. Okay. <laughs> anyway. You're like, duh, Zaire's in North Africa. I need like some I need like some ding. So ding, I'm gonna go back that. to the page that I had up and see if that was actually the answers. Well, you think I'm I'm lying to you? Oh, now? there it is, yeah. <laughs> no, okay, so I pulled up the last chance to see Wiki page when we started talking about it, and I'm reading the top and scrolling down, and I realize that there's a bunch of animals and places listed. I'm like, Oh, don't look. I got the two the first two right legitimately. Congratulations. <laughs> That's great. Uh, okay, so continuing on. Around the time that Adams went to school in Cambridge, uh, so this is after all of his early experiences, he also hitchhiked around Europe, and uh, probably because he was bored of the smaller and less funny people that usually surrounded him. Uh, he was 6'5 when he was about like 17 years old, so he was a really tall white dude in Cambridge with like this big nose and a penchant for like funny, obtuse things. Yeah. So he probably didn't have the biggest circle of friends. <laughs> That's a good guess. And so he hitchhiked all over the place uh, in Europe, and in order to support himself, he had a lot of different jobs, weird jobs that he would take just so that he could... Uh, he was the original Mike Rowe. Right. Well, no. <laughs> Those are dirty jobs specifically. 
These are dirty just because. <laughs> well, we'll get to that. But uh, but yeah, so weird professions that he actually ended up taking in order to finance his journey around uh, all these places in Europe and everywhere else he he decided to go. What that means is two things. So one thing is it's kind of cool that he didn't like come from a bunch of money. Uh, sure. So, so it's not like he was just sitting at home. You know, it's always cool when someone's just a regular guy. Well, yeah. Compared to like, well, they were born into money. Well, right. In this case, I mean, and I guess there was a little bit of money because his grandparents ran uh, this big animal shelter. He was the fifth Earl of Dukesha. Definitely not that. So some of these jobs, barn builder, chicken shed cleaner. Okay. Hospital porter. Chicken shed cleaner. Right. What did he have to clean up in the chicken shed? All of the chicken things. Uh, and then my favorite, which was the bodyguard to the uh, Katari family, when they were in London, they actually went through a couple of different bodyguards. And what's really funny is that, uh, is that Douglas wasn't the only uh, person who, who got one of these jobs. You know, it was uh, a couple of people that are now sort of well-known English people. <laughs> they were just hiring big, random, fa- like aspiring English... Englishman. Well, so I don't know. Him. I mean, sort of, I suppose. So, <laughs> so he he basically uh, for a couple of months, I think, uh, while they were like outside the embassy or something like that, they wanted a bodyguard, and they hired this big, uh, like oafy looking dude who happened to be Douglas Adams. And there was all these crazy stories. My favorite story that was told about them at the time was that the the family, specifically, like I guess the. Uh, the patriarch of the family, uh, they they were staying at this really fancy hotel, and they ordered everything there was on the room service menu, every nice. single thing. Nice. And then after eating like little bites of all the things on the room service menu, they decided that instead they would call out for a burgers. <laughs> they didn't like anything. It. I don't know who this like family is or or were at the time, but it seems like they were very flippant with like their their money and their the behavior. Royal family, they probably had a lot of money, <laughs> and they weren't in Qatar, so they could enjoy all the things that they weren't allowed to enjoy in Qatar. So uh, one of the things that I'll bring up throughout this is is just that all these experiences as a as a barn builder, as a hospital porter, chicken shed cleaner, a bodyguard to this crazy like foreign family. Uh, who does all these weird things for like no apparent reason other than the fact that they can, <laughs> they sort of have all come together to influence uh, his writing. And specifically, Hitchhiker's Guide, since that is kind of the ultimate work that, that he was able to come up with in his, uh, his short 49 years on the earth. Um, so just wondering, what kind of odd jobs uh, have you or, or maybe family or friends that you're directly related to uh, been involved in anything crazy sort of similar to that that could belong on that list like have you ever worked a job that you would feel comfortable putting on that that particular list uh i don't know i drove a tractor like you drove a tractor yeah a tractor that pulled for like wagon rides for like a month and a half okay so i that, mean that's probably the weirdest job i've had that's something i've never done so i cleaned up hazardous spills at ups that was something but that, it wasn't nothing. You're like, you're like, it was pretty much nothing. Like this strange blue red liquid is all over my hands, but that's okay because because I have gloves on. <laughs> I hope they're protective. <laughs> did did you ever uh, did you ever like uh, like come across any like liquids or substances that were like acidic or like burned through things or like did anything crazy? Oh yeah, yeah. There's commonly stuff that like people use in the home that you know if you were to get it on your hands, it would burn you right away. 
Um, and you know, there was cases where that would happen to people from time to time. They would just grab a box that was like soaked in it <laughs> and, uh, they would, you know, get a good burn on it, on their forearms and stuff. Do you have any stories from your tractor days? The tractor days are were pretty uh, brief <laughs> and rather boring. It was cold most of the time. I remember it being cold. Was that like the, the like hayride where you have a bunch of bushels of hay and everyone piles in the back? Right. Right. I'm just pulling <laughs> a giant trailer full of like hay and like school kids. Well, that's interesting. I mean, at least you didn't have to clean up after them, I suppose. No. Um, I, I have uh, some family members that have had some interesting jobs. Myself, uh, the most interesting job I've ever had is really not that interesting. <laughs> it was... Uh, it was Maybe like, you're remarkably boring. It was serving beer to, uh, to a baseball stadium. There you go. No, I mean, I don't mean to say it's not interesting. It's just not, like, incredibly weird or unique. It's very mundane, except for three hours a night. Where everything is insanely hectic. Well, there were some exciting times in that job, uh, but but I think one of the more interesting jobs that that uh, that I've heard specific stories of. Uh, I had a, a, a great grandmother who was a flapper uh, in the 1920s. I guess it would be something like that. And do, you, do you know what a flapper is? I, I didn't think it was a job. What is that? <laughs> okay. What is it as a profession? Well, uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess it's kind of like a hipster. Was Gam Gam a whore? <laughs> um, I suppose it might not be a job, except that the women back in those days didn't really have jobs. I mean, some of them did, but yeah, I, okay. So, <laughs> but yeah. Um, I, it's like, kind of like saying, you know, you look at old pictures of my dad, he was probably kind of a hippie. Well, hippie's a job. <laughs> no, hippie's a lack of a job. He had a job, so he wasn't a full-blown hippie. Hippie's a lifestyle. Hippie is a lifestyle. And so is hipster. So is flapper. I guess so. those are lifestyles, uh, besides the point. But flappers were one of the first, you know, in modern history, definable kind of... Uh, I don't know. I know. mean, there, there's... They all... certainly came before beatniks and hipsters. Yeah, but there's always been that stuff. The, yes, but I'm talking about modern history, things that people could actually, like, remotely relate to. I suppose. I, You're not going to relate to somebody from like the 1840s who was like a pioneer woman. I don't know. I relate. You I have to- nothing to I do totally with I totally relate to pioneer women. Oh, yeah. You both <laughs> cook in cast iron all the time. Exactly. Yes, there you go. No, I, I think uh, <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> Um, and, and, she would think that you're a witch with a refrigerator. Well, I don't have a lot of experience with these weird jobs. Uh, the weirdest one I can think of is one that is just weird because of what it was, which is yeah. uh, that my uh, my grandpa, on my mom's uh, side, was in. Uh, he was like a, a part of uh, the World War uh, in in the army, except his job was like playing an instrument. So he was in an army band, right? That's cool. Yeah, but it's weird. I um like what what is this army band like I'm in a couple. There's bands. a story about I don't uh, want to play behind a bunch of people that are getting killed. That seems ridiculous. The, you know the jazz musician Dave Brubeck. <laughs> sure, he has the same story. He joined. He got drafted in World War II, and it turned out he could play. So he went to Europe and played for all the troops. They would just go from place to place and entertain the guys who weren't on the front lines and stuff like that. Um, you know, it's important to do, and you know. It's important. It is. You ask the guys, you know. Well, going out, Dave Brubeck going out and playing music for the guys in the front line is a little different from, like. I bet that's what he did, too. Well, like, some of those. Did he go to Europe? Well, like, some of those guys, for example. I mean, look, he wasn't, like, where they were getting bombed, but he was back at the base. 
Well, what they used to do is is actually like go out and play like while people were fighting, etc. But this wasn't the Civil War. Yes, they didn't even do that in World War One. It's the Revolutionary War <laughs> because they're playing their fifes. Because my relatives live to be really old. No, no, you're you're right. I just think that's kind of a an awkward thing. They're like, well, yeah, well, we go out every day and we fight and stuff. He's like, yeah, but I play trombone, you know. Look, I encourage you. Uh, uh, Ken Burns Jazz, and I'll, I'll find the story for you. It's about 10 minutes long, probably. The story about Dave Brubeck's service in the war. Like, he, you know, they got into some shit. Like, it wasn't just like, oh, you have a cushy job there. It, sure, he didn't have to go to the front lines and fight, but it was, you know, it takes everyone to win the war. No, just... I get that. I'm not belittling the, the musicians that if they're there for a particular purpose. Like, I'm just surprised that you're taking that point of view. Maybe you're just being defensive because you are a musician. No, I, I, I don't want to be traveling to, uh, to anywhere we might be having some kind of conflict yeah. to play a rock concert for, for uh, the military. That's well, great. That's great that people do that. It's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just feel like although a guitar could be a great instrument of war, uh, you know, I, I can't play a distorted chord loud we enough. We have John Petrucci, and he will be the greatest guitar warrior. Yes, well, John Petrucci from Dream Theater could could stomp people with the very thought of the note that he didn't play. Oh wow! Um, so anyway, um, do you think there's a reason why Adams didn't look for, or per- perhaps he wasn't accepted at normal positions? Is I think he was almost reaching to be even more eccentric than he actually was. Uh, yeah, I think it's more like he didn't look for a normal job. That's not what he was going to do. Yeah, so so he kind of on purpose put himself in the weirdest positions ever, almost for just experience in his kind of uh, chosen role, which has always been uh, throughout uh, university and even before that. It, he wanted to be a comedian. He wanted to be a writer. He wanted to be in theater. He wanted to be a, a producer. He wanted to to uh, have this diverse and crazy background of things to build off of. Uh-huh. And I totally understand that. So, but I mean... I need another beer, if, uh, if you got one over there. Yeah. Awesome. In the beginning, the universe was created. This made a lot of people very angry. What is this, It's been sir? widely regarded as a bad move. <laughs> uh, we are currently drinking the beer that you guys brought back yesterday, the KUA Extra Pale Ale from Paw Paw Brewing Company. Uh, I'm not sure what KUA means, um, but I've had uh, several sips on one now. It's pretty tasty. I'm enjoying it. Yeah, it was a good beer. When we went there uh, to uh, to Two Paws Brewing, uh, we that's what it's called. Yeah, we <laughs> we uh, well, it's called Paw Paw Brewing Company, but a lot of people call it Two, two Paws there. Uh, and uh, oh, is, are you sure that that's not a Terry Pratchett joke? Uh, like X X X X. Yeah, four X. <laughs> It's a, it's a good one. We went there. We actually had uh, 15 uh, tasters, so that was fun. It was like this gigantic circle of tasting beers, and then on top of that, another smaller circle of tasting <laughs> beers. So we had to finish like the Different first... Different levels of beers. Yeah, we had to finish the first six to move on to the next like nine. It oh, was, it's like a game. It's called Kalamazoo Urban Assault. KUA. Interesting. It is uh, 6.3% alcohol. Not bad. It is pretty good. 
uh, okay, so so I kind of agree with you about that. You know, he, he sort of did what he wanted to do uh, to lead him along whatever path he was taking. He definitely wasn't looking to find a job at just a restaurant or something. Um, after leaving school, but before... Although I could totally see him as being a bartender for like a couple months. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, it doesn't mean that he didn't have other jobs, but these are like the most crazy jobs that he did have. Right. Um, so after he got out of school, but before Hitchhikers became popular... Uh, before he had written anything about Hitchhikers, he wrote several skits for Monty Python and participated in them in the TV show. Uh, and for that reason, some people actually refer to him as the fifth member of Monty Python because it was so rare. I think there was only one or two people that, that actually were in the show uh, multiple times well, on yeah. any skits. Well, yeah, there was Carol Cleveland. There was a couple of women who were in it. Carol Cleveland was the main woman who was always in it. Um, <clears throat> but it's interesting that you call him the fifth member. Is it, what's the joke behind that? I don't get it. Uh, well, explain Is yourself. it just a random joke? Well, I know that there are already six main members of Monty Python. And clearly, if there was an extra member, it would have to be Carol Cleveland first. But clearly, you know, what's the joke? I don't get it. Well, I must know. I mean... There's so many inside jokes with these things, and it's so fun to figure them all out. He's always been about just the, the crazy number things not really making sense. I imagine that... There's this- a joke like that in... Uh, uh, Holy Grail. Sure. Well, I imagine this is mostly just because there are more than than five. Okay. So you know, it's it's. Not... I'm reading too much. In it's a joke for their fans to make them stop reading so much into things. Well, yes. It's yeah. just them being silly. Um. So so I asked a, a little bit earlier. Well, we talked about like your experience with Monty Python growing up. Uh, my dad actually watched the show too when it was on uh, on PBS or whenever it aired yeah, here. PBS. Uh, so I was able and exposed to it. Um, and he also kind of liked some old Doctor Who, some like English comedies. So I sort of was already present in that mindset of this sort of witty banter, this kind of dry humor. I wouldn't say that uh, I am all about like the the English stuff. However. Uh, I certainly have a great affection towards it. You're an Anglophile. No, I don't think so. You were at one point in your life. Well, perhaps. But but I also, uh, you know, was a, a person that really liked Coldplay. You know? Yeah. And so I've, I've sort of drifted away from that. Hey, we all are not proud of certain bands that we liked in the no, past. I mean, now that I know what their affinity for Douglas Adams was and Hitchhiker's Guide, maybe I'll drift back there. I, <laughs> I do love Don't Panic. That's a great song by them. Uh, anyway, so your experience was sort of the same from your dad passing it on and saying, this right. is funny. You should think it's funny. <laughs> I suppose it kind of works that way. Damn it, it's but funny. But it's really easy when uh, the first thing you watch is the dead parrot sketch. Uh, and yeah. you just sold. Gotcha. I remember my dad, uh, would we would watch it on PBS, but uh, he got this retarded uh, desktop Pythonizer. It was just the most annoying application you could ever have on a computer. Yeah, but we we are so we're at the tail end of like goofy shit of, of millennials and sort of on the opposite side of the uh, generation X, which means that our parents were among the first parents to just sort of get this technology shown to them. And and when you right. have like just awful applications and stuff, that's all they would ever want to do. I mean, you're familiar with dad jokes, right? Sure. So dad jokes, the cheesiest jokes that there are. They always come from dads. 
Mm-hmm. So of course the dads are are also going to be playing with like the worst possible of applications. <laughs> I mean, like I remember going to CompUSA when I was younger, and my dad buying like After Dark flying toaster screensaver. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's great that they sold a screensaver for like twenty five dollars. Oh people my god, it. I couldn't believe that that used to be a thing. Because this is the aquarium. Oh wait, you should get the aquarium expansion pack add on for ten dollars that allows you to put other kinds of fish and change the color of the you water. You can get a piranha DLC. <laughs> well, see, now we know better. However, now that I say that, instead of going to the store to buy something for $10, you just press a button and suddenly you have spent it. Yes. So, is it better? I'm not sure. It's so much easier to spend your money nowadays. It is a lot easier to spend your money, that's for sure. <laughs> so, uh, I guess what I'm asking, what I'm getting at here, is uh, some people kind of get it and some people don't. I know a lot mm-hmm. of people that don't really understand English humor. I know people still that don't even understand English accents. It's like they're just, they are literally... I feel a, like they're not trying. No, there are a lot of people who don't understand the English accent. Look, that's, that's why in the BBC they put captions on some of the shows. You can certainly uh, get used to it uh, and get better at it. Um, yeah, but you would, have to, you would have to actually try really hard. You know, you'd have to, to intend... I don't think you have to try really hard. You just have to try. No, Jason, you have to intend on doing that. On paying attention? Well, it's like, we're talking about... Dave, I think the word you're looking for here is focus. No, say say we're talking about English drama, English comedies, English whatever, uh, people that have uh, extravagance or even just above average accents. Uh, Okay. It's difficult for someone who hasn't ever, like, been shown that. Yes, it would be just as difficult for someone from Scotland to understand someone who's from Georgia. Yes, but the difference is there are tons of uh, American shows in Scotland and not very many Scottish shows in America. Well, the thing is, you know, there's not a ton of shows in America that are full, like, unless they're watching, like, uh, Duck Dynasty or something like that, it's not going to be full of people just, like, with twangy southern accents. No, no, I'm not talking about a southern accent. I'm talking about... In the United States, there are a large portion of people that right. just didn't want to ever try and never grew up with and never were exposed See, to. See, you're saying they didn't want to try. But a lot of that has to do with the fact that they were never exposed to or never grew up with this kind of stuff as something that they should watch. You have to remember that like our parents, for example, were very open and, and had lots of different uh, like things that they would expose us to. It's not the experience of every child that they, that they watch this stuff on TV. In fact... A lot of families in well, the U.S. I know US, they don't watch these shows on TV. Well, or that doesn't necessarily put people off from the English accent. Well, I'm just telling you, it's it's difficult for people that have not been around and listened to and uh, you know this kind of accent to just suddenly watch and understand it. So it's it's hard. I understand that you have to separate yourself from how you grew up. I mean, I was always cool with it, but heck, I mean, my my dad watched like dubbed Japanese uh, films too, and yeah. like cowboy western films and so i just had the experience across the gamut you know Mm -hmm. but see we're lucky that way that's all i'm saying sure Uh, so here it's nice to have an eclectic uh background well we're from chicago i mean i bet there's a lot of families in chicago that don't watch pbs english dramas i mean come on it's probably the majority of people here that don't uh aren't exposed to and don't watch this kind of stuff i think i watched we watched a comedy show on there it was monty python yeah but monty python is not that successful in the United States, dude. It's a cult thing. It, for a while, it was really popular. When the Search for the Holy Grail came out, they sold out theaters all over the place, and like they went to the theater and they handed people freaking coconuts. 
Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> and I'm it was not, just a huge hit. I'm not saying it's not fantastic. I'm saying there are tons of people that have no idea what any of this is. Sure, but, you know, you could say it for a lot of things. We're not going to talk about, like, the most popular things ever all the time. I'm sure television is the most popular thing ever. We could have a show on the most popular things ever. That'd be interesting. <laughs> like, what was the most popular thing 2,000 years ago? Clean water. No, that is not interesting. <laughs> no, I mean, like, uh, the 90s. What was the most popular thing uh, every year? I bet you would you would love talking about that. I mean, Sure, I would like doing a historical version better, but it, oh, because those will both be fun. Because now we're not really into the most popular things. Well, yeah. But we would have been then, even if we didn't want to be. Because it would have, we would have still been like vastly exposed because to it. it doesn't matter. We were just going home asking for those things because they were commercials or our friends had them. Or the longer, the farther away you are from school, the more you realize that it's like just kind of a crazy social experiment that we do now. And it's like, well, there's also the learning the, the, that has a lot to do with it, and that's important. But the size of the school, the learning, and the exposure that you have to like <laughs> so many people on a daily basis, like you know, you're exposed to more people than you could possibly know. Yeah, and, but do you, like, know what, do you know personally? What, do you know what school is for? Really, school is is for just as much as it is for the education. It's for the social aspect of your life, right? It's but you the, could accomplish that with a smaller group of people. Well, no, I mean, it's the point is the world has like doubled in size since uh, since our parents were born, for example. Oh, since we were born. Well, so what I'm <laughs> sa- what I'm saying <laughs> that's is, how crazy it what is. What I'm saying is, uh, you it kind of makes you want to get used to. Uh, you know, being around a large group of people and behaving within that group and trying to survive, and it is kind of like the jungle. It's kind of like throwing, uh, uh, throwing someone into uh, into the wild just to see how they do, like pushing the pup out of the nest. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's a couple steps like that in in children's life here, right? There's there's going to school originally, and then there's going to like high school and participating in like after school events and sports. And then there's going to college and entirely leaving the house. Of yeah. course, you have people that don't do that. So, I mean, there, <laughs> there are birds that have broken wings since birth, you know. That, Ooh, I mean, that's well that's pushed. true. Um, but I, I want to get too far off topic. So, uh, what is your favorite Monty Python bit? What do you think uh, uh, is the thing you like the most? Did you like the movies oh more? Did you like a particular uh, kind of, uh, of sketch that they had? Oh, Dave, that's a really tough question. Um, I mean, look, I love the, oh, there's too many good ones. I can't just pick one. I, well, I can, I'll go first. So, uh, uh, I, I looked into this the other day and I had the advantage of having, uh, written and thought about all of this. <laughs> yes. And, and so, but that's part of the, the reason that I like doing the podcast though, is cause you get kind of the, whatever is on the tip of your tongue. So I'm sure that while I'm talking, you'll come up with, with one that was one of your favorites doesn't have to be the favorite. It could be tied. You know, uh, these four sketches all get a six. Uh, so uh, one of the things that, that I liked the most was um, one of my favorite authors was a huge Monty Python fan, Neil Gaiman. And his favorite he probably sketch, still is. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose he didn't lose uh, <laughs> his, uh, um, his good thoughts towards that comedy troupe. But uh, it's this one I remember with John Cleese, and he, he's, he's selling uh, albatrosses instead of ice cream. And Albatross! <laughs> so <it's... laughs> Who said, do you have any ice cream? That it's was no. one of the things on the desktop. I haven't bought any ice cream. It, just it would just say that. And I had, I had no context for it at all. It was just the most bizarre thing. Who said, what flavor is it? It's an albatross! <laughs> 
All I have is fucking albatross flavors. <laughs> I feel like that's one of the reasons why we liked Monty Python too when we were younger because American TV was less racy, less like, uh, you know, more scripted. This was all kind of crazy improv, like these people are insane yeah. sorts of comedy. Yeah. And that's the, the, the thing of it, isn't it? Like, it's because they were able to do that, which is which is why we like it, and which is why we like these books, like Hitchhiker's Guide. Um, so, I mean, well, yeah, first, it was the first time I had been exposed to literary comedy. Before I get into that, do you have a favorite sketch? I just looked at a list, and like eight of them stand out. Albatross. Aside from the popular like Dead Parrot, uh, some of my favorites were the Bruces, where they're all Australian and they're all named Bruce, and they're all philosophy professors. Yes. Uh, there's another random sketch, uh, which clued me in onto the, uh, how smart these guys were. There's a sketch of a soccer game and it's all just philosophers playing soccer and they're like dressed in their robes. It's like Socrates and Aristotle. Aristotle's over and, Socrates and Hermocrates and Aristotle. And like more modern day guys, like, and Joseph Kant is in the corner and like, they're just walking around thinking really hard. Albatross. <laughs> And uh, that was one of my favorites. And, of course, the Ministry of Silly Walks. And the Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> and, uh, okay, oh, so so great. I'm going to have to watch lots of Monty Python after we're done here. Great memories, yeah. And and uh, so that's the sort of thing that he grew up in. And, and how cool it would be to be a, a kid that was just, like, out of university, that had these connections um, through a comedy troupe that he was in in school and uh, and eventually got to actually write and perform on one of the most legendary uh, comedy like skit series ever to be on television. That would I mean, if not the most legendary. Yeah, that's amazing to like you know enjoy that for a while and then actually be able to become a part of it. Like imagine if you were uh, grew up in high school watching South Park and like now you're working on the show. Yes. So, so what I was saying earlier is it's it's really cool that this kind of stuff is, is comes out of like an improv like sketch theater sort of uh, uh, mindset. And and Hitchhiker's Guide was originally a radio series before it came out in print. So uh, what happened was, um, well, I guess I should go back to 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 how he came up with it. So back when he was hitchhiking in Europe, uh, he found himself. Uh, in Innsbruck, which is in Austria, right. and uh, he was he was sort of uh, following on his guide around uh, his guided tour around Europe, uh, guided by the Hitchhiker's Guide to Europe, which was an actual book back then. Yeah, a ripoff of his book. No, no, <laughs> it wasn't. It was before that. Uh, which it's funny because, and I'll, I'll skip ahead real quick, but but in then in the eighties, after he had written uh, several of these books, he actually wrote a thank you letter to the author of Hitchhiker's Guide to Europe, saying how much he appreciated that there was a Hitchhiker's Guide to Europe because uh, that's where the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy came from. So he was in Innsbruck, Austria, drunk off his ass after being in the bar, probably after some particularly difficult chicken shed cleaning. Oh. And and he was laying... Cleaning some chicken sheds up in the mountains. And he was laying in a field staring up at the sky with the Hitchhiker's Guide to Europe at his side. Maybe he was building a barn all day. Well, and I don't have the quote here in front of me, so I'm not sure exactly what it was. But he said something like, uh, he was like super depressed at that time. And it's because there wasn't really anybody, uh, as I said earlier, as tall as him or as funny as him around. And so he was just so sad. (laughs) (laughs) No, he was actually depressed. He wasn't anywhere near John Cleese. Because he hasn't found an ability yet to to have an outlet for his particular creative energies. Yeah. Uh, And so he's laying there drunk. 
Uh, probably off of whiskey because that's what I imagine him drinking. Um, and you're all involved in this now. Um, and and he thought to himself, I don't really think there's there's anything that cool around me right now. You know, he's got the Hitchhiker's Guide in his hand, and he's like. So I could go to this place or this place, but it's just going to be more of the same shit, right? Uh, it would be much cooler if like, if like I could go to the stars because that is totally this uncharted, un, like off-the-books material. So basically the book is all the cool places he wanted to go hang out. Well, yeah, and with all the experience of all of the characters and jobs that he's, he's like, ever I had. I want to go have a meal at the restaurant at the end of the universe. Well, and I can tell you an interesting story about the restaurant at the end of the universe, <laughs> too, and how that uh, came along. But but so that's how it sort of got created. And it was originally a radio series, so eventually he sort of started writing a little bit of a pilot. And because he had a couple connections through Monty Python and through a couple other people that he had met in, in his journey so far, uh, they allowed him to put a pilot on the radio. Now, the thing is, the pilot on the radio, uh, they gave it to him. It was like 10.30 p.m. on a Wednesday. Right. And so it was like the worst possible <laughs> time. They're like, this is never going to work. This sci-fi comedy, like, yeah, they had stuff like that around that time, but it was all polished and, and more pristine and from right. writers that had already been around for a while. So uh, he put this out there. Uh, there were no, like, advertising promotions for it or anything. And... It became successful. Uh, just one of those guys that's in the right place at the right time. You know, I hesitate to think about what would have happened to Adams if if he didn't find some success. Because he's kind of one of those personalities that just kept wandering around. That's just sort of crazy. Like, he could have just ended up dying somewhere ridiculous and no one would have ever known who he was. So, it makes you wonder a little bit, like, how many of these sort of uh, depressed geniuses... <laughs> with all of this creative talent are there out there who instead of, of having this great career or this wonderful work of fiction that was recognized by millions, they died under the sheer intense pressure of chicken shed cleaning, for example. <laughs> I don't know that there's a lot of uh, chicken shed cleaners who are hidden geniuses. Not specifically, no. Albatross! Uh, Alright, Bruce. So, Want another beer, Bruce? <laughs> uh, so... It was out of convenience, I think, uh, because it was written a little bit at a time. So what happened was uh, he wrote a couple. It became popular. He wrote the first six, which was kind of a season. And what, what I liked, another uh, sort of aside to this, is that there's a lot that he has in common with Lewis Carroll. Even though he never really says anything about that in, in his writing and his works, um, Lewis Carroll, for example, is where he got this uh, naming convention for his first episodes. So instead of calling him like episode one or episode two, he called him Fit the First and Fit the Second, Fit the Third, uh, you know, which which were stemming from this uh, this poem in uh, one of Lewis Carroll's uh, poems. Uh, I think it was called The Hunting of the Snark. And and so of course it was. <laughs> <laughs> there is this big debate about 42, and if we ever want to do a continuation of this show, uh, a 42 show is interesting because there's a lot of people that have a lot of crazy things out there about why he picked that number. There's a lot of stuff in Lewis Carroll, there's a lot of stuff in like the ancient Romans, and there's a lot of stuff in like English bureaucracy, and there's things in his family, there's things that his friends did, like, and there's, there's people like Stephen Fry who are just like, he just picked a number, he thought it was a funny number. 
Here I am, brain the size of a planet, and they ask me to take you up to the bridge. Call that job satisfaction, because I don't. I bet you that Marvin would have the answer. Ah, cheers. So, writing this a little bit at a time played well to his style of comedy because he made it up as he went along. And so, that's one of those things that makes this interesting because you've read the stories and they just kind of seem like they are made up as they go along. One of my favorite parts is, true. is when the Heart of Gold has uh, a couple of missiles launched at it uh, from Magrathea. <laughs> and what happens is the missiles, uh, after, of course, they they engage the Infinite and Probability engine in the... Uh, in the heart of gold, just magically turn into a whale and a petunia. Fantastic, right? When they're uh, coming across Slaughterbard fast, which I was reading today, and I hope I'm not stomping on one of your other stories. But I, I was, think you I was about it. to talk about. Okay, that, yeah. go ahead. Uh, well, okay, I, I just wanted to finish this up, but you can feel free to to bring that up too. It's a very interesting story, um, and I'm sure I have more to add to it. But just real quickly, so what what do you think uh, having Having been a series, a radio series before the novelization actually occurred, um, do you think that that brings to the table something a physical book doesn't? Uh, some of the things that they were able to do, like the sound effects and, and things like that, they focused on more than they had in any previous shows on the radio. So, have you ever listened to a radio series? Have you listened to the Hitchhiker's radio series, for example? I've listened to books on tape. I've never listened to like a radio series, really. Um, you should totally listen to the original Hitchhiker's radio series. They have it all available yeah, online. I should. I've never listened to it. It is massive. I imagine that it would be very um, engaging, but at the same time, after you're able to produce that, then you write the book, I bet the book was a lot more polished. That's how it felt. The The book feels like perfect and polished in the first one. The second one kind of teeters off a little bit, and they all like, you know, th they're all just not quite as good as the last one. You know, the drop-off isn't that much, but uh, it, it kind of feels that way with those books. Uh, so, like, he worked so much more on the first one, and he spent a little bit less time on the second one. Because it sort of fits his writing style, right? No, he's just, he's a scatterbrained eccentric. And that's, that's my point. And that's how it happens. You have to just put stuff on paper or else it's never going to happen. It's sort of like, uh, you know, the, the first thing that, uh, that a great rock group did or, or, or whatever. It's like you, you pour all of these experiences and these people that you've met and the places you've been to into one creative outlet and then out it comes. After that, it's never really going to be as satisfying unless you're continuing to have those experiences. Well, that's the way yeah, that I maybe feel. maybe if you continue, but like you know, well either that or you just I mean, like a band like Pink Floyd. Their first stuff wasn't their best. You know, a lot of bands take a couple of you know albums or books for authors to get going before they're really at their best. But know? what does that say about that author or band? To me, it says yes, they were eventually great. But what they were is practiced. Yes, they, a guy like they Douglas, were practiced and talented. A Douglas guy like Adams, Adams was just raw talent. Well, that's what I'm saying. The yeah. best, the best of them, the best of them out there, they can't. This like, is what separates. It is them. hard to like to just put things into into a piece of paper. He is a favorite of authors. Yeah. Whenever you're looking at a profession, when all the people in that profession have a favorite guy. Then you know, like who really is maybe the best there is. There. Well, it's hard to be constantly funny. You can be an author that tells jokes, but uh, or you can be an author that that sort of uh, creates anecdotes. 
that are based around things or jokes that have already happened. Uh, these moralities and things that already exist in, in the tropes of, uh, of, of novelization. But uh, Douglas Adams was someone who created jokes. He was someone that wrote them. He was offhanded. It, it, was, uh, yeah. it was a mad genius. Unique. And uh, that's why his family life was, was all screwed up. That's why he hitchhiked and worked as a chicken shed cleaner. Because he doesn't exist in the real world. Chicken he, shed cleaner. He, he is not someone... That should have been our drink word. Who is, who is able to... Yeah, who is able to just uh, go about his day-to-day duties as a, like a real, regular person in reality. Yeah. Right? He didn't... Uh, we don't deserve him here almost. It's he was going to be a chicken shed cleaner for a little while. <laughs> He could have been a chicken shed cleaner forever. Thank God someone at BBC Four I can't believe gave him an opportunity. We haven't screwed that up once. You mean and said chicken shed instead? Chicken shed cleaner. <laughs> Cheers. So Marvin. So I, I, I was saying before, does does the radio series bring anything to the table that a physical book doesn't? Are there any downfalls with using that medium, you think? Um, I don't think there's many downfalls to it. Uh, it's just a different way to present it. Uh, it's very engaging, and it was certainly a very popular format to use at the time, so it wasn't inappropriate. Okay. And so you were talking about uh, Doctor Who. Obviously, there is this big, huge uh, um, uh, connection between uh, Adams and between the world of Doctor Who, and I'll lead you into whatever it was you were going to talk about, I guess, uh, in, in the fact that uh, what happened with Adams is that after... Uh, being sort of graduated to this producer after having the success with his first uh, Hitchhiker's Guide series, um, he kind of got bored with uh, just directing whatever it was he was directing or producing at the time. Yeah. He didn't really care about it. So then he moved on and was offered uh, this uh, job as a, I believe it was a script editor for, uh, for Doctor Who, which was likely one of his favorite series, which is how he got into it in the first place. I mean, it makes perfect sense. Other than Monty Python, probably his favorite series. Is that what you wanted to talk about? Did you want me to drink? No, no, no. More? I had a much more specific, uh, like, anecdote. Uh, okay. So, uh, was it about one of the books uh, being a Doctor Who episode? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so then we'll, we'll lead you there, then, I suppose. So, <clears throat> so after he uh, moved on to become uh, the script editor on Doctor Who. He later went on to write a couple episodes. He wrote one called City of Death, which was... Uh, and back in the day, Doctor Who episodes weren't just one episode. They were stories, which is like three, four, five episodes, kind of... Uh, Story arc. Yeah, and all of the of the good fiction back then was the serialized fiction, but it was all miniseries that you would watch over a period of time. That's how novels were, too, in, in a lot of respects. I kind of miss that, to be honest with you. Because now, if you have a to-be-continued, you should feel lucky. Because uh, writers and producers on television shows don't think that they can find a big enough audience to be able to do uh, three-parters and four-parters and five-parters. Doctor Who It's does... coming back around again, though. Well, you have to. it has to be big enough. As has... we talked about last night, yeah. Or it, last week. It has to attract enough people, yeah. But, but that's good. So City of Death that he wrote is widely regarded as one of the best classic Doctor Who series of all time. And a couple of notes from then... Uh, he actually was mentioned several times in the Doctor Who series. Uh, one we talked about earlier, or a couple, uh, and the Sixth Doctor mentions him in saying, my old friend Douglas, uh, in response to what's wrong with getting drunk, he says, ask the glass of water. <laughs> uh, and uh, 
Douglas also wrote, um, by the way, uh, that story, City of Death, wasn't written under Douglas Adams' name, but rather a pen name that he put it together. I think it was like uh, uh, Andrew something or, or Daryl Spignew, or I, I'm not exactly David sure. David Agnew. David Agnew, okay, exactly. So, um, and he wrote another uh, series called Shada, uh, but it was never actually turned into a Doctor Who episode. And in there, a character claims to have replaced a copy of the worshipful and ancient law of Gallifrey with the hitch, and then it stopped at that point, interrupted. Um, <laughs> but of course, those are things that were written into uh, into the series by himself or with, with, uh, with him being uh, a part of it. And as we mentioned earlier, there was a lot that wasn't. Um, one last thing before you mention what you have to... Uh, when at school, uh, Douglas Adams wrote and performed a play that he called Dr. Witch. Dr. Witch. That's a good one. Uh, no, I had just um, read, and I can't find it now, that uh, one of the stories he had wrote for Doctor what? Who actually became... didn't They didn't use it, and he took a bunch of parts of it and wrote it into the... Um, Doctor Who one of the, the later Cricket books. Men. Was that it? Well, like, Slarda Bartfast... Like yes. went from like the doctor to being Slarda Bartfast and like, you know, they, they made almost just it, like that whole Magrathea thing was like a Doctor Who episode. Um, and it kind of feels like one. Yes, it's 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 uh, Doctor Who and the Cricket Men, and the screenplay was never produced. Uh, but he rewrote the story with the characters from Hitchhikers instead of uh, Doctor Who to fit that universe instead. So Slarda Bartfast was the doctor. There was a starship called Bistromath, and that starship was actually um, it it operated on the concept of the the randomness and fluctuation of math in a bistro. In so he's a bistro. Like, so he's like, while on the pad that the waiter has, the bill pad, uh, <laughs> math is fluid and doesn't mean anything. And and actually... And uh, that's the predecessor to the infinite improb- improbability drive. No, it's actually much more more powerful than the in- infinite improbability drive. How can it be more powerful? I, I can't get into this. infinite. I can't get into this right now, but there's a whole thing We need about, to spend an entire show on this. We could talk about the physics of the infinite improbability drive, yeah. Yes, or the lack thereof. <laughs> uh, but, but it had the first, uh, just like the TARDIS, because in the TARDIS and Doctor Who, it's able to present itself as something different. So this giant ship... Who is, is described as being giant ship-like in nature, <laughs> um, actually has an outward appearance of an upended Italian bistro. So basically, uh, it was uh, sort of it has the TARDIS because it was the TARDIS. That's what right. it was supposed to be right. uh, in this particular thing. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, the oh you didn't mention, but the cricketers who were like the sort of evil warring alien race in this uh, were the Daleks. So, uh. so it's interesting that he wrote an entire Doctor Who series that then was transmitted into uh, Hitchhiker's Guide world, but but it would not be so uh, out of out of character or out of mind uh, to to see the Doctor popping up in in the Hitchhiker's universe, right? Because they live in the same place. This yeah, is that's all the same, be the same universe. universe. Yeah, totally. It's the same stuff. I mean, you think. Uh, Douglas Adams, someone who grew up watching Doctor Who, etc. Like well, he, this is where he lived in his head. <laughs> you know, what what did you have to say? No, I just love the connection between like the actual guy and Doctor Who. You have to watch a couple of these, uh, uh, like City of Death, this miniseries. It's it's so Douglas Adams, it's crazy. Uh, and the relationship he had with Tom Baker and uh, and a couple of the other Doctors is is really cool too. Yeah, I bet I like that. I love Doctor Who. 
Uh, okay, so uh, Dirk Gently, which is a, a series that he wrote afterwards, uh, it is called Dirk Gently's uh, Holistic Holistic Detective Agency. Right. Now, have you read those books at all? Oh, a long time ago. I don't remember them like I remember the guy, though. So they were interesting. Uh, they described as a genre as a ghost horror detective time travel romantic comedy epic. Sounds about right. Which basically means that Douglas... Maybe was, that's why I don't remember them. He was just going insane and spitting his mind out onto pages. I mean, the last six years before he ended up passing away, he was basically trying to write a book and kept telling his publishers that he was on the verge of finishing. When, <laughs> when in reality, he had only written like three chapters. Oh, man. So it's kind of sad, but I'm so glad that he was able to spit all this stuff out at one time. Yeah, he, he wrote a lot, you know. Do you it would have been any, nice to get more, but... Do you have any questions about Douglas as, like, uh, his personal life or, or other things that he did or anything like that? I, I don't know. I mean, are there any cool stories, anecdotes about him? Absolutely. Like, when he was traveling? Uh, traveling specifically, I mean, when he did last chance to see, he climbed Mount Kilimanjaro in a, in a rhino suit. Uh, and, and that was sort of uh, to raise money for the Save the Rhinos charity. And which now was it the northern white rhino that he was saving? Uh, I assume so. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, but but now that that same charity has for the past probably twelve years or however long he's been gone, I guess uh, fourteen, has had a charity event that raises tons of money uh, and honors him, a memorial Douglas Adams event. This is how much he sort of touched on people. In fact, uh, this past year in two thousand fifteen. Uh, well, this year, uh, Neil Gaiman uh, actually spoke at that event, yeah. and uh, he spoke on the topic of immortality and Douglas Adams. Wow, I, I just read something really cool on the wiki page. I'm surprised you didn't mention it. Uh, he performed with Prokel Haram once. That's pretty cool. They're a uh, kind of like an English prog rock band from the 70s. Yeah, in fact, the uh, guitarist from Procol Harum was at a party at Douglas Adams' house and performed the whole song Whiter Shade of Pale at the party, Yeah, which is pretty cool. Yeah. But even more cool, uh, because he played guitar, was a left-handed guitarist, and uh, owned probably 20 or 30 guitars himself. Adams was a big fan of rock bands, played in a couple, uh, never really did very much, but was friends with a lot of rock stars like David Gilmore from Pink Floyd. On his 42nd birthday, he actually ended up on stage with Pink Floyd, uh, playing with them for the concert as a gift to him from David Gilmore. In fact, they were so connected that it was Douglas Adams who came up with the name of their album, I think it was in like 94, called Division Bell. Yep. Oh, man. Uh, he had such a cool life. <laughs> well, he did, but he was also insane, you know. Slightly, slightly um, insane. One of my favorite things, and, and mostly insane. And going probably. back to uh, to talking about uh, Tom Baker and Doctor Who, uh, Tom Baker was an actor first and foremost. Although he identifies most probably with his time as the Doctor. Um, I was talking earlier about Douglas being a big fan of Apple, being a big fan of technology in general, and he was kind of a visionary in that respect too. I mean, he opened up a company called, uh, uh, what was it called? The, the Digital Village in uh, 1994, who created a, a video game called Starship Titanic that he had written and, uh, and, and helped out with. With and, Terry Jones from Monty Python. And actually and actually helped out uh, to create this uh, this website called 
uh, H2G2, or before that, Everything 2. And I was a part of that a long time ago. Yeah, I remember Everything 2. But basically all it was was a giant Wikipedia where people were also allowed to be funny. It was Wikipedia before Wikipedia was around. No, Wikipedia was, was around at the same time. Oh, I didn't know about Wikipedia way back then. Unfortunately, Unfortunately. Uh, this never really caught on, although H2G2 still exists, obviously referring to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, uh, it's sort of the earthly version of it anyway. Um, it is is kind of redundant because we have better uh, better information now on different sources. But again, what I thought was so cool about it is because it was allowed to be funny. You were allowed to have that sort of Douglas Adams humor, that wittiness about you while you were relaying information. Yeah. And I wish that Wikipedia would be like that, although I know why it can't be. Because if it was, then there would be a lot of people receiving bad marks in school because that's how people study or <laughs> or get information for anything. That's how people learn now. Apparently. It's an easy way to learn. So, uh, getting back to what I was talking about, my, my, one of my favorite things is, uh, because I was such a, a fan of Apple at the time, etc., and just technology in general, we're talking about 1990. In 1990, um, there wasn't an internet outside of, uh, of this uh, sort of network of BBSs. You know, FTP, right. Gopher, there was stuff like AOL and CompuServe, but all it was was little windows and chat rooms. It didn't connect to any overarching network of, of actual information and, uh, and stuff like that. So Douglas wrote a documentary film called Hyperland, starring Tom Baker from Doctor Who in 1990. And it basically shows, it's like a 90-minute documentary, and it basically shows and predicts how like uh, multimedia television, smart TVs, internet, how all that will all work based on hypertext. At the time, there was hypertext, but this is before it became hypertext markup language uh, from Tim Berners-Lee. Yeah. Uh, so before there was HTML, before there was a World Wide Web, he created this sort of you zany... You needed to have HTML before you could have a World Wide Web. Yeah. He made this sort of zany... But there was hypercard and stuff like right. on, on You Apple. needed hypertext through hypercard to make it... Once again, uh, Douglas Adams is doing a lot to popularize technology to help move it forward. Yep, he really did. And so he, he made this whole documentary about like uh, what it would be like to have this uh, sort of television, uh, multimedia, computer experience where you could follow things. So what he did basically was he pioneered the use of uh, and, and the ability to fall into a Wikipedia hole. Uh, before there before there was one. Oh man! So in that first documentary, and you should check I thank it out. him and curse him in the same breath. You should check it out. He goes from like uh, like this poetry to like a city in the Gulf of Mexico to you know it, he just kind of shows how you can just go from place to place by being linked uh, all by media, being video and audio and text and, and and information, and it's just really exciting stuff. Yeah. And so the fact that he was one of the first people to come up with this kind of concept uh, and then, like you said, try to popularize it with people, try to right. get, get the word out. People like, listen to him. Why are you not, you know... Uh, At least in hindsight, it seems like people listen to him. Well, he was part of a wave. Right. I mean, how... He wasn't the only voice, how, that's for sure. How much water you are, I guess, is dependent on uh, your influence on society, Right. Uh, how much, uh, how much like volume of water you were in the wave, but mm. he was part of the wave that created what we're doing right now. I never realized how much of an like I knew a lot about him, but I never realized the sort of impact and the influence he had on technology. 
when he was around in like very current technology. Yeah, I mean, he was he at was his time. He was at all about this. In fact, in like uh, expos and stuff in his very uh, early days after Hitchhikers, he would go to these uh, expositions. He would uh, have like a keynote, or he would talk, or he would have a panel. But instead of leaving, like most celebrities or authors do, he would stay there and debate astrophysics. <laughs> he would stay there and talk about uh, you know fictional and uh, and non-fictional science and and uh, and reality and alternate universes and. He would really try to to be, you know, as as true as he could to all the things that he was writing. So if he was talking about the infinite improbability engine, although it obviously doesn't make a whole lot of sense, it was ground in as much science as it could possibly have been grounded. Yep. And that's pretty cool. And that's sort of a theme throughout his life. And he likes to ground everything in science and reason and fact. Yeah, especially, you know, coming from where he did come from, which is, I guess, uh, being born in, uh, I don't know, uh, it must have been the, the 60s or something. Uh, the kind of science fiction that was around then was... 1952. So, 50s and 60s. Uh, the kind of science fiction around then was very, like, hard science fiction. Well, he was 11 years old when Doctor Who started on television. Sure. Which, I, was, which was hard science fiction back then. But then you've got like Isaac Asimov and, and like, uh, you know, yeah. all these other great science fiction writers. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that I would say that Doctor Who is hard science fiction. They kind of explain away the time travel pretty easily. So uh, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> okay, I see it's, what It's you almost mean. more like fantasy, you know, but, but that's okay. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I hope that... I've, I've sort of done a good job of going over his career. There's there's also an article on uh, the Drink 5 website, which is entitled uh, Douglas Adams' 42 Things, give or take, that you didn't yeah. know previously. And uh, I think that he is a guy that you didn't know a lot about. Like, did you know he was a, a staunch atheist who Richard Dawkins looked up to? Uh, and Richard Dawkins, the author of The God Delusion, was one of yeah. like the, the major atheists in the world. However, even though he was... A, uh, a staunch atheist, he still rolled around in religion all the time, used it in his writing, learned about it, went to seminars. You know, that's one of the good things I see about him is that he didn't care if he believed in it or not. He just wanted to know more about it. If he didn't believe in it, why did other people? And and, and there must be a reason behind that, right? Right. So figure it out. That's what He wanted to figure out things behind things. Yeah, I mean, this was a really big deal to me when I was a kid, when I read the books. After I read the books, I learned more about him. I learned that he was a, quote, radical atheist, is how he describes himself. Um, and that was at a time in my life when I was, you know, deciding that I was an atheist. So I would say that that had a lot to do uh, not maybe not a ton to do, but it was certainly an influence on me at that time in my life uh, to know that like, oh wow, this is a guy who like I love what he does and I love his work and uh, you know he's a radical atheist and he's you know very pro being an atheist so to speak. Mm. Uh, and it had a you know he only it had a positive him, effect on me. He only called himself a radical atheist because uh, I, in his words, uh, not directly, but uh, he. He always thought that when he called himself an atheist, people would question him and ask him uh, what that really meant. Right. And, and so he only called himself that so that people would stop questioning and him. And that's what I like about it. Because, <laughs> you know, I, I don't think... It doesn't seem to come up as much as an adult. But when you're younger, I think people are more open to talking about it because nobody's really quite made up their mind. Um, right. But 
uh, I like that because I, you know, it, it it does lend a certain air of uh, weight to it to say yes, you know, there is no room for argument in what I'm saying here. I'm a radical atheist. You don't have to ask me if I'm agnostic. I'm sure of what I'm saying. Well, if there's something that he was, I suppose it would be that he's sure. Yes. Um, whether or not it was talking about a spaceship that uh, was also uh, had the external appearance of an Italian bistro, or the fact that a missile could turn into a whale at any time while falling to the earth at rapid speeds, um, he was he was very sure of all the things that he said, and he had to be because he wrote this stuff on the fly. He made it up out of his own imagination, and and that's what he was. He was an improv, uh, you know, fiction comedy fantasy uh genius and and people can say you know yeah the story also has like a sort of uh a romantic or like a an overarching plot line no it doesn't that's bullshit <laughs> this story is just like a stream of consciousness very awesome good witty dialogue funny uh, uh plot less you know the whole point is that it jumps around from from theme to theme it doesn't exist inside of one of them yeah uh, and, and so there are some books out there, some biographies uh, that paint Douglas in a negative light because he was always someone that wasn't finishing what he was supposed to be doing, that was running past deadlines, that was making uh, his superiors nervous. Can you imagine being a publisher or uh, a director or an editor for Douglas Adams? I'm sure it would drive me nuts. It Well, it has to because he is nuts. Uh, but... But God, I wish he didn't pass away when he was 49. Like, that was ridiculously too early. Yeah. He was doing so many great things. Uh, it is a very unfortunate thing. Yeah, I'm looking at the doodle that they had for his 61st birthday. What would have been his 61st birthday uh, a couple years ago. And, uh, you know, a lot of times when they do these doodles, they don't... Um, they, it's only for one country or two countries. This was very nearly worldwide. Except for, like, some of the Middle East. It was... Used everywhere. It was it was everywhere except for Afghanistan. <laughs> uh, no, it was in Afghanistan. It was, it was not, not in, in like Iran, in Egypt, and Sudan. Most of North Africa, Saudi Arabia. Is that like because it was during the uh, like Desert Storm or something? Or? It was March. No, this was back March eleventh, two thousand thirteen. Oh, they did it in two thousand thirteen. Yeah, yeah. It was like a um, a shot of the dashboard, and it's got the guide and like a, a teacup and all the goofy things you know from the show sure um well if you guys have any uh any thoughts or opinions uh on that's this the doodle particular <laughs> episode or uh you know want to shoot us any requests because we did talk about quite a lot of shows that we could do you know? right uh, and that should be what we're talking about forever is is all the things we could do <laughs> there's always going to be new shows to do i hope we can do anything uh, if we cover every single topic there ever was, then I guess we'll just have to shut down. But isn't it interesting that that we'll have to wait for the season of football to start? <laughs> that you know you can you can learn a whole lot about a topic. For example, uh, on the television podcast, I, I learned a lot about that, and uh, I hope you learned some new things about Douglas. I did, Adams. and like I said, I learned some new things about Douglas Adams. Excellent. I'm happy. Well, uh, this was another episode of the Retro Spectacle Podcast brought to you by myself, David Biggs, and co-host Jason Evans. Uh, cheers, Jason. Cheers to Douglas. To Douglas. We encourage you uh, to, to go read 
and watch and listen to all of his works. And stick around. Uh, in a few minutes, we're going to be talking about the TV soup. <laughs>